Sick of sorrow Sick of the pain Sick of hearing Again and again That there's gonna be Peace on earth Warcast for Catholics. Welcome to another episode of this podcast sponsored by the Catholic Peace Fellowship. You can find us at catholicpeacefellowship.org. And we're going to get right into it today because we are continuing our interview with Joshua Castile, a Iraq War veteran, conscientious objector, and a young man who's a Catholic who has deep thoughts about issues of war and peace, and not just thoughts, but practical experience. So let's get right back into our interview with Joshua Castile, and after that interview, we'll hear some more on what the church's tradition is on issues of war and peace. And we're back here uh, with Joshua Castile, and we want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, what happened when Joshua came to realize he could not participate in war anymore and uh, what that process was, and specifically when he began, after he got home, to fill out the conscientious objector application. What was that like? I know while you were there, you thought, maybe I'll do it, and, uh, but it wasn't until you got back from Iraq that you began. What was that like, talking to your chain of command and and any advice for soldiers thinking about that? Sure. Well, I wrote the application while I was in Iraq, um, but I didn't submit it until I came back from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And I, once I came to the decision that I was going to go through with this, I, um, it was after I'd already started the writing process. What I, what I told myself was that I was going to, to write my application, try to put my thoughts down on paper, and when I finished the application, if I still was convicted by the same by the same ethics, the same issues, then I would go ahead and tell my chain of command and follow through. And if I got to the end of the writing process and I found that I, I, I didn't believe this, then I would act accordingly. Hmm. And, um, and so about the time that I was finishing up my application, um, I'd, I'd had a, an experience with a detainee that, just, that, that, that changed my mind. It, it, it solidified for me. And in the application process, it's called uh, the crystallization of conscience moment. And after that interrogation, I, uh, I told my chain of command um, that I was intending to apply uh, for conscience objection. And for me, it started with my chaplain. I let my chaplain know, and, um, and then I let my company commander know the same day. And I think one of the things that was helpful in my application process was the fact that uh, I, I made a pretty concerted effort not... Uh, not to be too political mm-hmm. about issues, um, to do my job, to do it quietly, um, not to, um, to be subversive to authority, and to let my chain of command know that I had every intention of following all lawful orders, um, but that as soon as I had the opportunity to um, avail myself of the system, I was going to do everything within my power to do that. And the chain of command... Um, appreciated that, and they told me right. that they appreciated the fact that I was that I was submitting to authority while at the same time um, taking advantage of my constitutional rights, and um, and so I told my my commander that I would uh, I would continue 
um, submitting to him, but that as soon as we came back to the States, uh, I would do everything within my power to, um, to get out of the military. And he said that he would help me. And uh, I think it was that, that issue of authority that, right. that kind of allowed him the, the freedom to, to, to be able to support me. Right. So your sense is, if possible, soldiers should try and establish a, uh, a good relationship with their, uh, with their commands. Okay, so what actually happened then once you came back to the States with this sense that your command may support you? Um, how did you go about the process of filing? Well, the, the, the process of CO is pretty organized. Um, and we came back to the States January 8th, and there had been a, uh, a bit of a botch up of where my papers had been stored. They'd been put into a file that had been put onto a boat that was late. And so I had to, I had to reproduce my application materials. Um, and the, the actual beginning of the process started about maybe three weeks after we came back from, the, from Iraq. Where did you come back to? What, which, uh, what base? Uh, Fort Gordon in Georgia. Okay. And after then... It, I went about my normal duties as a soldier, going to PT in the morning, uh, going to the uh, the motor pool on Thursdays, normal soldierly life. And about a month and a half later, I was assigned a uh, investigating officer, who is a an officer of the rank captain or above, outside my immediate chain of command, assigned to uh, investigate the sincerity of my claim. And that's really the key issue is sincerity. Right. If you can prove sincerity, then, you, then you're supposed to be allowed to be discharged. Right. Now, let's, let's take a moment here for any soldiers listening and say the other, the other key is you need to show that you've had, as you said, a crystallization of conscience, so a, a change of heart, and that you uh, cannot in conscience participate in war in any form. War in all forms is the crucial issue, but you don't necessarily have to uh, be able to... Um, have some sort of like ideological right, um, right. assault against war in all forms. You just simply have to have an issue of conscience that says, I can't be the, the trigger puller. Right. I can't be the one doing it. Right. And so my investigating officer was assigned about a month and a half after my application was submitted. And he interrogated me, members of my unit, um, called up significant people in my past, such as uh, a priest, um, of a church I'd, I'd, I'd attended, and a, uh, the president of the university I attended uh, for a while. And after the course of that investigation, he was of the opinion that I was sincere in my, in my claim. And um, his recommendation, along with the recommendation of my battalion chaplain and um, uh, an army psychologist, uh, went forward through the through the chain of command all the way up to um, the uh, conscience objection review board at the Pentagon, and um, at each level of the process, um, I found support. Um, all the people who had reviewed my case um, thought that I was sincere, and um, so about I think it was May seventeenth, I finally heard back from the um, Department of the Army that my application for conscience objection had been approved, and. One issue over the fact that um, everyone had, had supported me along the process is the fact that my application, I wrote a 26-page document wow. that was 10-point font and single-spaced. Right. Now, now, that's not normal. So if you're not up for a 26-page document, you can still be a conscientious objector. No, right? absolutely. But the, the more that you try to articulate 
your beliefs and your story. It's right. your personal story is really the important part because lots of people have different beliefs about different issues, but the 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 application for conscience objection is really putting you on trial right. and who you are as a person. So if you can if you can be as specific as possible telling your your personal story and how you arrived at the place that said war no more. Right. Um that's really going to be the clincher and I had lots of people tell me that they thought that I was my application because I had spent so much time writing it out. So if if, wow. if soldiers that are that are, feel a little bit shaky about expression, about writing, it can really help to seek to seek help in that area right. um, to be as thorough as possible in the application process. Okay, excellent. And we are going to uh take one more break and uh perhaps in the next podcast we will hear the final comments from Joshua and specifically about this. Once he got conscientious objector status, how does he look back at his time in the military and what advice does he have for people who are now serving in Iraq who are also Christians? Many of them are Catholic, but many of you may also be other denominations. What is it that are some of the issues that you're struggling with and how can Joshua, who, had, who has struggled through those same issues, help you? So uh, we'll come back for one more uh, session with Joshua in the next CPF podcast. Now is time for that section of Warcast for Catholics where we hear from Mike Schorsch, our resident scholar who is going to talk about what the church's ancient tradition is on matters of war and peace. We title this section In the Beginning and look at the first 500 years of church teaching on war and peace. So here's the next installment from Mike Schorsch. Hi, this is Mike Schorsch and you're listening to In the Beginning the part of the podcast where we discuss war and peace in the first 500 years of Christianity. Today's installment will offer a brief overview of Christian approaches to war and peace during the beginning of that time period. There is some controversy about whether early Christians actually fought at all during the first several hundred years after Christ. One of the earliest pieces of evidence actually comes from a pagan author, Celsus wrote a treatise against Christians entitled True Doctrine in the 170s AD. He concludes his arguments by urging Christians to help the emperor, to cooperate with him in what is right, to fight under him, and to serve as generals with him. Christians, he implies, were not fighting in the military and not leading military forces. But at just that same time, we hear of a particular legion under the emperor Marcus Aurelius, which was made up entirely of Christians. Eusebius, the first historian of the church as a whole, relates how Marcus Aurelius, besieged and short on water, called upon his Christian soldiers to pray to their god. When they did, so the story goes, it began to rain and the Roman legions were saved. Curiously, though, the emperor is reported to remark in other sources that these soldiers found bearing arms hateful. Also, as Eusebius himself admits, some pagan sources record the same incident, but say that it was Egyptian pagans who called down the rain, with no reference to Christians being there at all. It could be that, because the Roman army was a complex organization with a number of positions, most of the Christians in the army were non-combatants. But there is no way to know for certain whether Christians were fighting or not. 
At the least, though, we can see the difficult situation many Christians must have found themselves in. Jesus clearly preached peace, but it was difficult to avoid service to the Roman army. One father of the church who was known for clarity on the issue of violence was Tertullian, who lived from about 155 to 230 in northern Africa. He asked, Will a son of peace, that is, a Christian, be engaged in battle when it is unlawful for him to go to war? Tertullian went so far as to declare that Christians should not only not fight in battle, but should not even be in the army. For Tertullian, the important thing was that Christians not be tainted by killing. He cared more that Christians act like Christ than that they keep the Roman state orderly by fighting. A slightly different perspective comes from Origen, a theologian who lived in Egypt from 182 to 251. Origen also thought that Christians were forbidden from fighting in wars, but he thought that Christians were still useful for the state because their prayers and moral lives did more to protect it than swords ever could. The most important warfare, thought Origen, was spiritual warfare, fought against immorality. These were the wars Christians should fight, not political wars. Many Christian saints and martyrs, including Saints Marcellus and Martin, lived out this teaching of nonviolence by either refusing to be drafted into the military or by announcing, Christi ego mille sum, puniare mihi non licet. I am a soldier of Christ. It is not permissible for me to fight. In the next installment of In the Beginning, we'll take a look at later developments in Christian thought and action on war and peace, including St. Ambrose and his well-known student, St. Augustine. Well, that's about all the time we have for today in Warcast for Catholics. But a new episode, a new podcast is coming soon where we will continue to take up these very important questions of war, peace, and conscience as they affect soldiers and Catholic civilians alike. For now, I'm Mike Griffin, and this is Warcast for Catholics, sponsored by the Catholic Peace Fellowship.